Hi everybody, I am Jen Johnson and you are watching Thought by Thought Healing, where I like to get on here and talk about everything related to reversing chronic symptoms. I'm a chronic pain coach and I help people start their healing journey. If you're interested in my work, you can check out my website at thoughtbythoughthealing.com. I come at this from a Christian perspective, and so if that is important to you, then you should subscribe to this channel. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Dr. David Schechter, which I absolutely enjoyed, and I hope you do too. He is a doctor of mind-body medicine practicing in California, so if you are looking for a doctor's um, diagnosis around mind-body syndrome, TMS pain, then he's your guy. Um, check out his website that's going to be in the show notes. All right, you guys, thank you, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Bye. Hi, everybody. I am Jen Johnson, and you are watching Thought by Thought Healing, and I am so excited to have with me today Dr. David Schechter. Thank you, David, for being here. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, I want to just read a short bio um, so that everybody watching knows a little bit about you. Um, Dr. David Schechter obtained his bachelor's degree from Princeton University and his medical degree from New York University. He has practiced family and sports medicine in Southern California for over 25 years. And he's the author of Think Away Your Pain, which I am holding right here for those of you watching and not listening. Um, he um, has also written many other books and articles. Dr. David gives his patients and readers tools to heal chronic pain through understanding its causation, which is super important. His inspiration as a medical student was the late Dr. John Sarno, an American pioneer in the field of chronic pain management. Over the years, this inspiration has led Dr. Schechter to develop books, a clinical program, a workbook called the Mind-Body Workbook, and other materials. In addition to his medical practice, Dr. Schechter teaches and gives lectures about his mind-body medicine, about mind-body medicine. His results demonstrate that understanding the mind-body connection can help sufferers find relief and healing. His online course, The Mind-Body Journey, is an important addition to the field and is already getting great feedback and support. He created this course along with a psychologist, a psychologist in the field, Justin Barker. So this is, I, I, so every year I go, and I go camping by myself for a week, and it's my favorite week of the year. Um, and this last time I went, I just binged your book, um, and I, I loved it. It was, it was super understandable um, and um, just written in a way that I could relate to it, and that was really helpful. So, um, thank you. I, you know, when people go away by themselves, the, the latest term is a retreat instead of a retreat. Oh, I have not heard that. And yeah, that's exactly Your what listeners are getting exposed to all the new terminology now. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey into uh, mind body medicine? I know a lot, some doctors transition from Western traditional medicine into mind body and just tell us a little bit about that part of your story. I, I was fortunate to be exposed to mind body medicine while still a medical student. and that was as a result of having knee pain that wouldn't go away by conventional means. I walked into the office of John Sarno, who you mentioned uh, the pioneer in mind-body medicine and chronic pain. And I asked Dr. Sarno if he could recommend some treatments for knee pain. So he asked me a few questions about my knees and what I had done. And then he paused and he threw, threw something at me that turns out to be career defining. He said to me, I don't know how you'll take this, but 95% of chronic pain is probably psychosomatic. And that was a shock to me. It wasn't expect what I was expecting to hear walking into this professor of rehabilitation medicine's office. 
But that led to my going to his seminar. That led to my own healing journey, which was fortunately fairly rapid as I returned to basketball and running. It also led to my getting a small grant and being able to spend a summer in his office doing a research study, which was the first outcome study that he had done on his uh, clinical work and also learning from him, spending uh, a lot of those days seeing patients with him when I wasn't making phone calls for the research study. I, I decided to go into family medicine because I felt it was a very uh, mind-body, psychosocial, holistic field compared to other areas of medicine. But I always kept that strong connection to what Dr. Sarno had taught me. And after I got my private practice established in Los Angeles in the uh, 90s, I was able to reconnect with Dr. Sarno, who I'd stayed in touch with, and he had written some books by then. The books had become very well known and he started to get a lot of phone calls and emails. So he started referring patients to me from the West Coast, which gave me sufficient numbers of people to begin to work out my own program that was derived from his work, but that you know everyone builds on the, uh, the work of his predecessors. And so that's how I got into mind-body medicine. I consider myself most of the time to be very conventional physician. I certainly try to stay objective about uh, everything that I deal with, but I've got these this toolkit that a lot of physicians don't have, which is to look at the psychology, look at the background of a patient, understand how their childhood experiences and their other emotional experiences really play a huge role in their health. And that's just a, a plus that I have that you could call it integrative medicine or other things, but it uh, definitely makes my practice, I think, more effective and a lot more fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And probably more rewarding. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have so many questions about everything you just said. First of all, you got to work with John Sarno. That's just awesome. <laughs> um, when he first initially um, brought up the idea that it could be mind-body, was that in any way offensive to you at that time? It wasn't offensive. You know, I had read during college, I, I took a medical sociology course, and I read about the biopsychosocial model, which was mm -hmm. a, a model of health and illness that was written about by... Um, a professor at University of Rochester. And that biopsychosocial model was something that kind of stuck in my head. And when I went to medical school, I felt like I was working with too many doctors who were, if you will, technicians, but not physicians. And so when Dr. Sarno said psychosomatic to me, uh, you know, it wasn't what I was expecting to hear, but I had the openness. And this is an important thing for, for your listeners as well. If you just have a, an openness to the idea that this could be playing a role you know, you you can then under, you can then get into it more, either with a doctor visit or reading books, and you can see if it really applies appropriately to, to you. But the the openness was important. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you said a lot of doctors are technicians. Can you unpack um, the difference between how you view that and what you do? Well, a lot of Western medicine is, is truly remarkable. I mean, there's there's yep. uh, there's no other type of medicine that is as good for acute trauma, like someone bleeding or having a heart attack or that type of thing. And you know, there's a lot of technical skills, whether they be procedures or whether they be the use of certain very aggressive medications for for cancer and other conditions that really are not available in any other uh, healthcare model. On the other hand, what we've lost in the process of becoming very technically skilled in Western medicine, we've, we've lost that understanding that the disease happens to a patient and it's not just an abstract, it's really a patient experience. So understanding the patient's background, 
their personality type, as Dr. Sarno uh, taught me, and their life circumstances is a key element to healing that gets missed uh, both in the speed of uh, some of the mo modern medicine and also in the focus on the biomedical model as differentiated yeah. from the biopsychosocial model. Right, right. Okay. Um, you mentioned personality traits from Dr. John Sarno um, and looking at the, the person holistically. And for me, when I was healing, <laughs> um, when I hit that part in the journey, I was just, first I was like, wait, you want me to look at my personality traits? What does, what's that have to do with this? Um, and then it ended up being a really key factor. Um, do you mind just talking about that a little bit? And in particular, um, a lot of my watchers are Christians. I am too. And I'd love to hit on goodism. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you can unpack kind of what John Sarno meant by well, that. Dr. Sarno started to talk about personality characteristics, including uh, being overly self-critical, yeah. being hard on yourself, that is, being highly responsible for others. Um, it's good to be responsible, but sometimes we can be too focused on taking care of others maybe missing out on the self-care. You mentioned goodism, you know, wanting to change the world and make a better world is a good thing, but it is really, really hard for any one person to have much impact. We can have an impact perhaps societally or as a group or in larger numbers. And so there's frustration involved with that when you want to change things that aren't the way you want, it, that you want them to be. And so that focus on change or goodism, uh, you know, kind people, are, are goodest, but they often suffer from frustration and uh, that can lead to that can lead to symptoms. So in the constellation of these symptoms, I, I named the type T personality to differentiate it from type A and some other personalities that have been described. And I give Dr. Credit, Dr. Sarno credit for obviously the individual uh, elements of the personality that he identified, but the constellation of it, I called the type T personality, T for tension. Okay. Because the personality type, um, which, you know, I had certain element of it because I had TMS, which Dr. Sarno actually has an element of because he had some TMS. And obviously you mentioned yourself. Yep. Um, it's a common person, common elements. And yet at the same time, let's say we are a 10 out of 10 perfectionist or a 10 out of 10 goodist. We can probably live a lot happier and have still a very fulfilling and meaningful life by just tuning that down to nine and a half or maybe nine we don't have to go to three we don't have to go to zero but just tuning it down a little bit and kind of having a little bit more control over when you go full bore at something versus when you do it but you don't do it quite as uh internally uh, pressuring pressure is a big element in this yeah um that, that brings up two thoughts, I guess, and, and maybe two pathways that people think about this. So it sounds like your perspective is that as we're healing, it's not that we need to change. I, th I think that's a big question people have. When you realize, oh, shoot, I'm a perfectionist or I'm overly efficient with my time or um, I'm a, a goodest, um, there's this question of, well, does that mean that I need to change completely who I am or not? And so it sounds like yours, your, your take on it is just kind of a reduction of the pressure within those personality types. Yeah, I'm not sure we could change our personality as an adult, even if we wanted to. Certainly a, a drastic change. I mean, have you, have you seen examples of that in your life where people dramatically change their personality? Pretty rare. But I think that, and you don't need to do that. Now, if there are 
if, if we determine that certain symptoms are coming from a particular stressor, whether that be a bad job, whether that be a terrible relationship, whether that be something else in your life, it may, maybe then we can look at the physical symptom as a signal or an alert to do something different, right? Mm -hmm. So that might be changing jobs. That might be realizing the relationship is not right for you, et cetera. But in terms of the core personality and the pressure that it puts on us, I have found that just slight changes, increased awareness, increased sensitivity to ourselves, more self-care, as well as taking care of others, that that makes a huge difference. Yeah, I can I can vouch for that too. That paying attention to yourself piece um, was really missing from my life in the chronic pain portion of my life. Um, mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that makes a big change. Um, and just, I just want to insert in here really quick that before this, um, before we started recording, I asked uh, Dr. Dave if he was taking on new clients and he is. So for any of you that are interested in um, wanting that doctor's um, diagnosis of TMS, is that, do you use the term TMS or do you use I, I, do, I do use the term TMS primarily because obviously it, it, I'm, I'm loyal to Dr. Sarno's yep. uh, original conception of it. There's yeah. a lot of other good names, including, uh, mind-body syndrome, psychophysiologic disorder, PPD, yeah. neuroplastic uh, pain. There's a lot of good names, but TMS is kind of the core of what I've done for all these years. So I continue to use that, that name. Dr. Sarno never really loved the name tension myositis syndrome and later changed oh. it to tension myoneural syndrome. Um, you know, we could talk about that if you're interested, but um, I, I, I do think that where possible, people who have chronic pain or other stress-related conditions, it's extremely helpful to have a physician make a clear diagnosis. Mm -hmm. If that's possible in your local community, that's ideal. And if it's not, I've been able during the pandemic with the rules being a little bit loosened about licensure to, to offer telemedicine services as well. But mm -hmm. it is very helpful to have that firm diagnosis moving forward. Yeah, that doubt wreaks havoc in our brains as we're trying to heal. So absolutely. Um, that is a, a key uh, inhibitor of healing, a key crippler, and uh, often a stage to overcome on the way toward healing. Oh, I like the way you put that. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of people get frustrated by their doubts. <laughs> and we know that interaction between our symptoms and our emotions is often a, a key player in it. So that, I like the way you put that. I, I talk about in my book, The 12 Stages of Healing. I don't know if you remember that chapter, yep. maybe mm -hmm. that you were reading while you were um, camping out. So you might have missed the, some. But no, in that, in that chapter, one of, the, one of the stages is dealing with doubt and overcoming it. Because yeah. that is, seems to be so common when you're working through a stress-related condition that at some point you're gonna doubt it's that. You're gonna come back to sort of the, the old ways or the conventional medicine or other explanations and you're gonna say, oh, this probably is actually biomechanical or biomedical or whatever. And so you have to kind of overcome that. And uh, that's fighting that doubt, overcoming that doubt is one of the stages on, on, the, on the way to healing. Yeah, and because also on the trip to healing is a lot of flare-ups that yeah. is just such an opportunity for that doubt to come in 
um, or you can look at it as an, a, an opportunity to fight that doubt also. Right. So it's not always a straight line progress. Everybody loves would love it to be a straight line uh, from yeah. pain level here down to pain level zero, like a straight line. But usually it has more, as you said, ups and downs on the way. As long as the trend line's going in the right direction, people stay encouraged. But when you have a few good days and then you have a bad day, it can be hard to keep focused on what the diagnosis is and what the treatment is because a doubt can creep in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of your, or my favorite chapters in your book um, was the, or the subject of chronification. And mm -hmm. so I'd love for first for just you to kind of unpack that. And then I have a question from, well, it's more than just a watcher, but I'll explain that in a second. Um, that's very detailed, but I think actually lends to the idea or ask the questions uh, that chronification answers. So can you just unpack for, for people listening what that is? Well, one of the issues is uh, many of us, almost everybody that's listening has had some type of acute pain. Acute means a pain that lasts up to six weeks or less. And so if you sprain your ankle, if you bang your knee, if you twist your shoulder, that's an acute pain. What then happens when pain goes from acute to chronic? And chronic pain is what we primarily have our most success with in this uh, model of TMS treatment. And so that's what um, a researcher in Chicago called the chronification process. And the interesting thing is that the scientific research, which has occurred since Dr. Sarno's uh, books and since his prim primary clinical uh, uh, years, has shown that pain that's experienced acutely is experienced in a part of the brain associated with sensations, but pain that shifts, if you've had pain for three months, six months, three years, five years, there's a different part of the brain that would light up or have increased blood flow on very specialized functional MRI imaging. And so therefore acute and chronic pain are different. Understanding how chronification occurs is important and understanding that the treatment for chronic pain is different than acute pain. Sprain your ankle, put an ice, put ice pack on it, wear a brace, usually better in a few weeks. But chronic pain, which is what most of the people who are struggling with pain are dealing with, is a different beast and has to be handled in a different way that's much more psychological and educationally oriented. What So that shifting uh, from the sensory cortex, yeah. um, it switches to, is it the limbic system? What part of your yeah, brain? It switches to the, the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, which are very closely connected to the uh, emotional centers of the brain, including the, including the limbic uh, system. And so acute pain, more sensory, biomechanical, whatever, in most cases. By the way, you can have acute stress-related pain too, but we're going to leave that as, an, uh, as a separate example. And, and most chronic pain, however, the treatment has to focus on that emotional aspect because those are the centers of the brain that are really processing the the signals at that point and and that means then that as it goes from an acute injury to a chronic injury um the the way of healing shifts right the method of how we heal from an acute injury to an emotional injury not an emotional chronified <laughs> injury um how we approach it is different correct yeah, the approach is very much different for, for chronic than acute. And, okay. um, you know, that chronification occurs at around somewhere between three and six months and continues to about a year, after which it doesn't seem to change much. So get rid of that pain early if you can. And uh, if, it, if it persists, think about, in addition to getting the appropriate test to see if there's anything structurally wrong, 
think about whether the emotions uh, might be tied in there. Your, your brain is getting kind of twisted around that pain in, in an inappropriate way for you. Okay, so that leads to my question from, I'm going to call her a watcher, but really she's my mother. Oh. <laughs> um, and I, I have been very lucky to have um, my family and my mother come alongside me and understanding this mind-body connection, even though she doesn't necessarily have um, ongoing chronic pain. I think we all have elements of that everywhere in our life. Um, but um, she did recently have uh, what she believes to be an acute injury. And so she has a question that, um, that I don't want you to diagnose her over this call at all, but I think it brings up some really good questioning questions about like messaging we get from doctors and stuff like that. So this is what she said. Should a patient require medical tests before agreeing to follow a doctor's orders when the doctor is making an educational guess, such as when a doctor says, I think you have a small meniscus tear, you should scale down your activities dramatically for four, four to six weeks and maybe it will heal on its own. And by the way, you should expect that you will have some atrophy to deal with afterwards. And I think that's the line I kind of want to focus on. Um, um, she felt like she shouldn't use her knee for a while um, and I'm wondering in that, in that chronification process, how much of the way we emotionally engage with our injury and how much the message we're getting from the doctor about whether or not you will heal, um, what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to partially put on my sports medicine cap and I'll partially put on my mind body cap. You know, if, if right. I had a patient that I thought had an acute meniscal injury, um, and again, I'm not, I'm not going to differentiate here by age. I, I presume your mom is of a certain age, you know, adding your age to whatever she was when she was when you were born. But yeah. I'm not going to focus on an age. I'm just going to say that if I think somebody has possibly a low-grade meniscal injury, there might be some alternatives to saying, don't do much for four to six weeks. This is for my sports medicine side. I might say to them, don't run, but ride a stationary bicycle or ride an outside bicycle, right? Because it's pretty low impact on the knee. I, I might say to them, try to swim, you know, but don't do jumping sports. So I want to keep that person as active as I can. Okay. Then at some point, and I might even refer them to physical therapy, because again, we're talking about an acute process, not a chronic process where I would use a different approach. Mm -hmm. But okay. if after four to six weeks, that person is not improving with anti-inflammatory medications, swimming, bike riding, physical therapy, then I would think that as the sports medicine doctor or as the physician that your mother's seeing, then it might be appropriate to think about imaging. Oh, if it it's might not, not healing. Be, yeah. It's not healing. So it's six weeks, you've done physical therapy, you've done swimming, whatever you've done, you've been active and it still hurts. And maybe he can push on a spot that's very commonly associated with the meniscus. And maybe it's appropriate to do imaging at that point. Now the imaging, you know, imaging is complicated because mm -hmm. you can have a small tear, it might've been there for 30 years. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the cause of pain. Yeah. So it's the clinical progress. It's the it's the symptoms. It's the physical exam that helped me determine whether to do imaging. And then the imaging, I like to, I actually look at the images myself. I, I you know, some physicians don't have maybe the skills to look at imaging in certain areas of the body. So they look at the report. But even if you're looking at the report, like if the meniscus is mildly torn on the outside or lateral of the knee, but your mother's pain is on the inside or medial of the knee. That's not the cause of the problem. Right. So you have to actually, you know, know that imaging has to really, really be closely followed. Plus, as we get older, there are more 
where in tear changes in the meniscus that don't have a big significance that everyone has, so-called gray hair of the knee, like gray hair of the spine. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, there's a lot of subtleties to this, but um, I don't think the doctor necessarily initially has to, quote, guess at a diagnosis, but they can make their best um, best impression, best uh, estimate of what's wrong based on the factors. If I have somebody who comes in and they can't straighten their knee at all, and they maybe they can't bend it past, um, you know, this kind of an angle, you know, maybe you need imaging right away because that could be something more serious uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the knee. Yeah. If somebody has pretty good range of motion, but there's pain, a little bit of tenderness, a lot of those people will improve with swimming or bike riding and maybe some Advil uh, for a few weeks and everything goes away and we don't have to delve into psychosocial or other things that uh, are important, but aren't always applicable. So right. hopefully that answers the question. It does. Yeah. And, but just to touch on the, the met, I think that I, I, when I look back on my healing process and I look at certain doctors who said, yeah. I think you will heal versus yeah. others that said, you'll probably be in pain forever. Oh, oh. Uh, unfortunately it's them that I believed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a part of your question I didn't answer. And I'm glad you brought it up again, which is it's extremely important for that initial physician to be objective, but also be reassuring. Yeah. to whomever got injured, right? In this case, it was right. your mother. Yes. So, you know, you, you might have a meniscal tear. It could just be a sprain, soft tissue injury. Most people improve. I find that uh, biking and, and swimming might be more helpful to you right now than, than running or long hiking uh, trips. And you might even combine that with a little bit of Advil. But I'm really optimistic that, you know, you'll improve over the next three or four weeks and we'll make an appointment for a follow-up in four weeks to see you. So that's so much different than saying, Oh, I think you might have a meniscal tear. And, you know, if you do, you're going to have to go to surgery. And uh, sometimes those don't work out that well. I mean, obviously there's a lot, but there's a lot of this stuff in medicine. You know, I hate to say this, but many of my colleagues in medicine, and I think it's more common among surgeons, but it's a problem throughout the, the field. They don't hear what they're saying to patients yeah. and therefore what that impact will be upon the patient. And you almost have to be able to, which I think I'm able to most of the time, screen what you're saying before you say it. So, because yeah. patients really sit on every word by their physician, as you as as was your experience, and they remember things the doctors say for so long. Yeah. And that can unfortunately be a, a negative if that doctor is giving them, if you will, misleading information or misinformation or just kind of negative information that's not really totally true. Yeah. You just mentioned, well, just as in like five minutes ago, the the idea that there you can have, uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher your language, but I think you said you can have an acute injury that is mind, body, or TMS. I, I have not heard somebody talk about this. Do you, All right. will you share? Well, well yeah. So that if you, if you were running and you tripped and you fell and you hurt your knee or you're playing softball and you twisted your knee running to second base, that's just a physical injury. Yeah. But pain can, and I, so I meant, I meant acute pain more than acute injury. So pain, but pain can occur from an injury, but it can also occur from stress and worry. Yeah. And so, you know, the example, I'll give a couple of examples here. So almost every physical symptom in the body can be caused by something biomedical or something psychological. Yeah. You can have a headache, because you got banged in the head playing football or because you were in a car accident. You can also have a headache because you're stressed about what your 
12-year-old daughter is doing in school. You can have diarrhea from a parasite, some bad food you ate, food poisoning, whatever. You can also have diarrhea because you're nervous about an exam coming up or you're nervous about a date you're having or, or something else that's worrying you. Right? Same exact physical symptom. You can have chest pain from a heart attack. You can also have chest pain from anxiety and they feel the same. Yeah. So when I'm saying about acute is that some of your, some of the listeners and maybe you and certainly me have had experiences where there was no injury, but the back mm -hmm. starts hurting and you say, well, maybe I slept wrong, this kind of thing. I hate that, that explanation because we've been sleeping every day since we were an infant. We're pretty good at it. Um, so if it's not the sleeping wrong explanation, what is it? Well, you probably went to bed that night tense for some reason. Something was bugging you about a relationship, about your job, about whatever it is. And so yeah. that's what I would call acute mind-body pain that we would hope doesn't become chronic. And usually it doesn't, especially if you understand and uh, know about this process. Um, so I didn't, I, I probably misstated if I said acute mind-body injury, I meant acute mind-body pain. So I'm, in general with chronification, we're talking about the difference between a physical injury that starts off and then something that persists a long time that maybe has nothing anymore to do with that physical injury because physical injuries heal. Amazing thing about the human body is that we don't have to do very much and the vast majority of things heal. If you get a cut, maybe it wash it off itself. the soap, unless it's really, really deep, you do nothing. And then a week later, you're looking, it's, it's pretty much gone. So yeah. amazing human body that, that uh, we have. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and I, I think I probably misquoted you for the record. But in, um, in that, so we've, got, we've now got acute injury, then we've got acute pain, um, which is, is from mind, mind, body. Yeah, um, yeah. and then we've got chronic pain. Let's look at diarrhea. <laughs> so yeah. we've got, so we've got, um, that can be from structural cause, um, or it can be from, um, a one-time, um, anxiety or nervousness. Yeah. And then you can also have chronic stomach issues. And that yeah. would be from an underlying unresolved, um, something that makes you nervous or anxious or something subconscious, correct? Yeah, so now you're kind of referring to sort of a psychophysiologic disorder that's not pain per se, although there can be pain associated, but we call mm -hmm. it irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. So if you're, if you're having GI issues and maybe you're in your 30s, 40s, maybe even 50s, and you know, you've seen your doctor and you've discussed it with them, depending on how long you've had those symptoms, at some point you may get testing to make sure you don't have inflammatory bowel disease, which is a biomedical condition, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and to make sure you don't have an infection that's persisting like a parasite. Uh -huh. Assuming those things are off the table, a very common cause of, of, of chronic abdominal symptoms that can be associated with like bloating, gas, intermittent diarrhea, poor digestion, is something called irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, mm -hmm. which is a psychophysiologic disorder and which we treat in similar ways to chronic pain, um, with you know, which we can talk about treatment more, or, or you can, you know, maybe you already know about that. But uh, yeah, that's IBS. So that's a good example of a chronic mind-body disorder. Okay, um, in that realm of of IBS, in, and maybe I'm opening a can of worms here, but what's your thoughts on food sensitivities? 
I was thinking when you said can of worms, uh, you can open the can of worms. Let's just not eat the can of worms because that might lead to uh, other digestive issues. Oh but in God. terms of in terms of food sensitive, look, there are real food allergies. There are real food allergies that cause hives, that cause uh, sometimes breathing problems, that cause other things. Right? People can have true allergies to food, and they can develop at different ages. Um, you know, Dr. Sarno talked a lot about mm -hmm. allergies and, and TMS, but I, I do believe that there are real food allergies. But in terms of food sensitivities, uh, sometimes we can that can become more of a mind-body condition than a reality. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example from a diff different realm and then from a food realm. Let's say you go into a, an elevator in a, in a big city and you take up the elevator. The elevator gets stuck between the 10th and the 11th floor. If you happen to get really anxious, which look, it's not pleasant being stuck in an elevator, but then finally, after five or 10 minutes, they fix the elevator, you get off the elevator. Okay, it's all good, right? You're going about your life. Maybe you ride the elevator again three weeks later. And it gets stuck again. And this time you have more anxiety, almost like a panic attack in the elevator. Mm -hmm. Well, that can lead, those two experiences can lead to you determining that you have, a, you know, you won't go in an elevator again. You have a phobia to elevator. So it's like a condition response. Yeah. So if you, let's go to food now, which is what we were talking about. So if you, you eat, maybe you go out to a, a dinner with someone, maybe some stuff that comes at, up at dinner is kind of intense emotionally or, or difficult to hear or whatever. And maybe you decided you ate, I don't know, uh, chicken that night, just pick a very, and Basically. your stomach went bad. So it's like, mm -hmm. well, I wonder if I have a food sensitivity, maybe I'm developing a sensitivity to chicken, you know, I don't know, or maybe it was bad chicken. But if you happen to go out two weeks later with someone else, and again, you're discussing a subject that makes you tense or worried or mm -hmm. sad or whatever, and you had chicken again, you might decide, and, you, and your stomach went bad, you might decide, I have a food sensitivity to chicken. I better switch to fish and, and beef because I can't eat chicken anymore. And in fact, it may just be the connection to a, a, a psychosocial situation, right? A psychological thing. Yeah. And so food sensitivities, we have to be very careful to label these things um, because it can lead to a lifetime of, 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 of limiting, limiting what mm -hmm. we can eat. Yeah, I've had patients with migraine headaches who've been told by their doctors, um, don't eat, you know, there's a bunch of foods you shouldn't eat, or we right. did a food sensitivity panel, cut those out or get rid of your migraine headache. Obviously, it didn't get rid of their migraine headaches because they came to see me for a different approach. And I used more of a mind body approach to help them with their mind, migraine headaches. But one of the things I have to do in the course of doing that mind body approach is I have to say to them, you actually have to go back and start eating those things that you were told not to eat because it didn't solve your problem. It's only added to your stress because there's yeah. it's hard to go eat, out to eat and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not good for you because the more you should eat as many foods as your body can tolerate. I mean, there's some foods that we can't tolerate, but eat as many things as you can. So I hope that gives a little bit of an explanation how food sensitivities can sometimes be overblown, mistaken, or can actually be uh, more easily thought of as a as a stress related thing or a mind body condition. Yeah, I I my list of symptoms that I had were just a mile long. Um, and one, the one test that came back positive for me was SIBO, small intestine bacteria overgrowth. And so I was, you know, just sure that that was the cause of all my stomach issues. Um, and then when I started healing uh, from pain things, I thought, what if this is also my stomach stuff? And I just thought, I'm going to give it a try. Even though I have this positive test, I'm going to give it a try. Um, and started reintroducing foods back in. And sure enough, I I can eat anything now. That's um, great. That's yeah. Great. 
And CISO is one of those diagnoses that seems to have become a little bit of a medical fad over the last five years. That's what I'm wondering. And, and, you know, there's been various medical fads throughout my 25, 30 year career, and there's probably been more in in previous Mm -hmm. uh, decades. But the, um, you know, the the SIBO is detected on a lot of people who have GI issues. They're given often an antibiotic that's supposed to go through your gut and clean it out and fix it. And often, they're, they're, even if it helps, they're back to the same symptoms in a few weeks. So that's one example of a test that probably is not as accurate in diagnosing as it should be. Another example is an MRI of your hip where you have a small labral tear. Wait a second, about 40 to 60% of the people between 30 and 70 have labral tears. So how, how clear is it that that is really the cause of your hip pain? Yeah. And same, similarly with bulging discs, which people know more about, that this is, again, a very common finding, bulging discs, uh, not specifically referring to a disc that's squeezing a nerve, but more of the, the kind of generic bulging disc that we we get as we get older. I love that you differentiated that too, between the, the bulging disc doesn't have to cause pain, but we do want to pay attention to a pinched nerve. Yeah, there are examples. Look, I, Dr. Sarno was very, um, very particular about imaging and that sort of thing, but uh, I, I look at enough imaging, I examine patients. There are people with 14, 15 millimeter disc herniations, not bulging, that the, the nerve is the nerves being squeezed and, the, and they examine them and it exactly correlates with what they should have. And I don't think that's imaginary or mind body. I think that's a structural problem. So I really do try to be objective. Hmm. It can be also something that I talk about in my book called a mixed picture, which is you could have a real structural issue, but also be amplifying that or enhancing that by the way you're dealing with stress or by how you're feeling about things. It's a little more difficult concept for people to get their hands around, head around sometimes because we talked before, it's really good to push away doubt when you're dealing with a mind-body disorder. But being objective, there are times where people do have something structural and TMS. And that, you know, what I work on with the most is the TMS and we see what's left at the end. Most times people are very functional once they get rid of the TMS. Oh, I like that. I like that approach. Um, in your book, you mention, not mention, you talk a lot about how um, the brain is capable of creating and or amplifying pain. And would that amplification be um, a part of what you were just talking about with the mixed bag? Yeah, the mixed, the mixed picture, um, certainly uh, amplification of a very minor condition. You know, so somebody might, uh, somebody might have a, a two out of 10 pain condition. And I know we can, there's different examples, different, but let's say we, we say that there is something going on. Maybe they had a couple of ankle surgeries and they were left with some, some, some um, healing that wasn't great. And so the ankle is not really perfect. They're able to walk there, but they have low grade pain from time to time. Okay. But if you hear from a doctor, oh, you're never going to be able to walk again. You're never going to be able to be normal again. This pain is never going to go away. And then you start thinking about that and then you tie your other parts of your life into, into that pain, pain might shoot up to five out of 10 or seven out of 10. If we can help you to understand, okay, so there's some, your ankle's not perfect, but the body can heal. And even if it heals, not exactly perfectly, you're not trying to become an Olympic athlete. You just want to live a normal life. And let's just try to peel away this emotional stuff and see what we, we're left with. And a lot of times we're left with no pain or just the kind of minor aches that people can deal with that don't really stop them from living. And so that would be an example of amplification and then de-amplifying and getting back to a manageable level. 
ideally zero out of 10. But if it's one or two, again, it's something that people sometimes have to deal with after car accidents or surgeries or that type of thing. Not always, but sometimes. So let's, let's, let's go there really quick. Well, not really quick, but let's go there. What does it look like in your um, expertise to, to heal, to reduce that? What, when we're looking at this um, psychosocial model of healing, um, to you, what, what does that entail? What's it involved? Well, I think you've, you've probably been hearing a little bit about the, the, treatment, the treatment approach from some of the people you've had on the show, but I'll just give you a summary of, of how I approach it. Yeah. First of all, it starts with uh, the exam, ideally, you know, with the history, uh, understanding the psychosocial, understanding the childhood, understanding the stressors in life, good physical exam, which, which provides um, clarity on what's going on and, and looking for the tender points that Dr. Sarno first identified, these six spots on the back that can help be marker spots for TMS, help confirm the diagnosis, mm -hmm. review of the imaging, and then hopefully at that point within this 45 minute initial consultation, I'm able to look the patient in the eye and say, you know what, you have TMS. And then I'm trying to, you know, if they have questions like, well, I thought I had this, I thought I had that. I'm trying to answer those questions, et cetera. Then I send them home with a home, uh, home treatment model. So that means they're gonna read something. Uh, they might start with my book. They might start with Dr. Sarno's book. Some people have come in to see me. They've already read one or two books. So I, mm -hmm. I might recommend a different book. I've got sort of a resource guide that I give my patients that I'll check off box, 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 you know, do read this. I want you to start journaling 10 or 15 minutes a day, right? So that's writing about your feelings. You can do it in a blank notebook. I've written a workbook that helps you with that. You had mentioned that earlier in the program. I'll check that box up, write for 10 or 15 minutes a day about your feelings, most days of the week. And then I want education, Sarno would say to me, was the penicillin for this disorder. So I'm also maybe recommending a podcast or two. Mm -hmm. I might be recommending my online course that you mentioned that I developed with a psychologist. Um, there's an app that I really like called Think Up that is an app of affirmations and I contributed affirmations to that. So I'm checking off five, six, seven things for people to do. It's not incredibly time consuming. I try to actually limit people because some of the, t the TMS patients are too enthusiastic about yep. the, the treatment. They want to jump in and do 20 hours a day and get this thing over with in yep. four days. You know, maybe mm -hmm. that's your style. <laughs> so I'll say to them, write for 10 or 15 minutes a day. Spend about a half an hour to an hour every other day reading a chapter or two or listening to a podcast or nice. doing part of my online course. The goal of this program is to get you to live, not to study this program. You're, you're not, you're not going to become mm -hmm. a doctor or psychologist as a result of this program. So you want to get on with your life, whatever that, whatever it is that you do. Yeah. And so they'll have this home assignment with the journaling, with the reading, maybe some video, podcast, or, you know, that type of thing, the apps. Maybe I'll have them stream one of the movies about TMS, like All the Rage. Yeah. And then they'll see me back in three or four weeks. That could be in video or it could be in person. The, the follow-up visit, it's less important that I see them in person. Um, and then we're, we're kind of seeing where they're at. You know, how far, what kind of progress have you made? What are you struggling with? At that point, and sometimes at an earlier point, but at that point, I might say, and try to, you know, based on my experience, would they do better doing some group? classes or therapy. There's a number of different groups that are led uh, by companies or by therapists. I lead a group with uh, the psychologist that I work with in LA on Zoom for diagnosed patients. Uh, okay. It's an hour and a half once a week. And we, we usually have six or seven people in the group and the two of us. And you know we talk about the, the obstacles. We talk about the issues. 
And um, the psychologist is very insightful as well. Um, so maybe it's group. Maybe I refer you to an individual therapist who's an expert in TMS, um, of which there are many of them on the West Coast, and there are many in other parts of the country as well. So then they're mostly all working virtually. So that works pretty well. So psychology, psychotherapy could be an important follow-up uh, treatment, as well as continuing to journal. Maybe I recommend a different book. I try to address your questions, doubts, and concerns. And that's the healing process. Maybe I see you back again in three or four weeks. You know, we're hopefully making progress here. So yes. that's just a kind of an overview. I don't know if I think it answers your question. But it does. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted. Yeah, that's exactly. I wanted to get a general. Just wanted to put it out there for those that are watching to know this is this is the approach that that I want to start taking when it comes to my chronic pain. Right. You you mentioned journaling, um, and um, uh, some of some of my clients and also just people that I've watched on like curable and whatnot, um, yeah. they, they end up stuck with the writing. Um, I think some people struggle with that. Um, do, do you have any insight as to how to work around the suggestions for them? Okay. Well, first of all, I find writing to be valuable. Yeah. Um, most of the uh, practitioners in this field do find it very helpful um, to the physicians primarily to, to do this. So what do you do if you struggle with it? Well, first of all, sometimes there's things in life that we struggle with that really mean we need to do them, right? So that's an important thing, right? People sometimes struggle uh, getting up on Sunday morning to go to church, but they need to go to church, right? So it's like, uh, you have to kind of struggle with some of these things. Not a bad thing to do. Um, but I, I, I give them a few options. I say to them, you don't have to journal every day of the week. How about three days a week, four days a week? Another option would be don't journal for 15 minutes, Journal for five minutes. Yeah. Um, you could take a couple of index cards with you to work. And when you have just a, a minute or two at work, write, write some things down that made you upset that day or made you happy or made you angry. I find that mixing in gratitude journaling yeah. and self-esteem journaling is a good mixture. So it's not all dark and negative stuff and that kind of thing, right? So that's another thing that can be helpful. For people don't literally don't like to write, you can also type out your answers. That's okay mm -hmm. on the computer. I don't think it's as good as writing, but it's okay. And the third thing is you can actually, this has been research on this, you can record your answers, for example, in your voice memo on your telephone or by other recording means. If you really, really can't sit down and write, you could talk it out. What's not effective, it appears, is thinking the answers. It's really much more effective to do something with the question and the answer. And the final step would be some people are just never going to write for me. And um, I say to them, we'll work on the rest of the program and uh, hopefully you won't need to the journal. So I try to be flexible. At the same time, I do find for your listeners and, and, and your clients that it is valuable to to journal. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, it was it was very powerful. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to figure out how to make an awkward transition to a question that I have <laughs> from a watcher. Go ahead. Um, and ask it. Yeah. Um, well, I want to transition a little bit into um, I'm going to call them strange or outlier um symptoms and so um i had somebody send me this this question which i have my own personal answer to but i'd love to hear yours um she says my dominant symptom has been headaches for nearly every day for 25 years or so and i believe i am seeing true progress in finding my way out of the headache fog it truly feels like a miracle however i'm one of those people that remembers my dreams almost every night and have for as long as i can remember i woke up in the middle of the night last night with a headache that felt caused by stressful dreams i just had this happens somewhat often is there something is this something that might diminish 
as I find my, my way out of the sustained fight or flight pattern that I've been in? Or do you have suggestions for how to combat dreams that feel out of, what does she say, out of conscious control? Some psychologists say that our dreams are our fears and our fantasies. And so I think that somebody who has very vivid dreams is probably uh, living out or expressing uh, fears or fantasies during the middle of the night that are harder for them to deal with during the daytime. That kind of person would be great if when they wake up from the dream, either immediately, which is the best, or first thing in the morning when you wake up from sleep, to to write about the dream, write about it and then try to analyze a little bit. So free associate with from your dream what you think it, it, it might mean. It might be very helpful to bring that. I don't generally say to bring your journal to your therapist, but in this case, with a dream, intense dreams like this for this person, it might be helpful for them to bring their dream journal to psychotherapy and discuss some of those dreams with the uh, with the therapist. Mm -hmm. And nobody has to look at the journal per se, but it might be a reminder of what the dreams are about. Right. And so I think the dreams will get less intense as the person's uh, coping better with stresses and and dealing with some maybe some traumas from the past. And in some way, they're blessed by having interesting dreams because many of us don't dream as much. And maybe it's a good release to do that. And you mm -hmm. just have to learn not to overreact to it, perhaps. Um, but those are some thoughts on dreams and, uh, and symptoms. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I personally have used a lot of visualization around sleep that I have found really helpful. Just vi visualizing how I want to sleep and what my dreams will include, which... I, th I think that's great. Another thing for I just thought of for uh, an intense dreamer might be to journal right before you go to sleep, because mm -hmm. then you're kind of getting everything out on the paper that maybe would otherwise come out in an intense dream. And if you have to let it out really intense, really dark, whatever, if you have to rip it up, whatever, yep. do that. But yep. that might be a good release so it doesn't have to come out during the middle of the night. Yeah. And then you can visualize after you journal, then you could switch to your mode, which is visualize a peaceful sleep, yeah. visualize having lovely dreams, et cetera. So you're releasing the tension and then you're visualizing the peace. Yeah, I love that combo. That's good. Okay. Um, and then um, you talk about this in your book a little bit, but I had somebody ask, um, how do you convince a person that they are dealing with mind-body symptoms? It is definitely important that the patient accept this. And so I'm looking at uh, the totality of their symptoms. I'm discussing with them what I found on exam. I'm discussing with them certainly their personality and past history and, and current stressors. I'm doing whatever testing is necessary so that we both feel comfortable that there's not a biomedical problem. And I'm answering questions. And so I'm telling people, it's okay if you have a little skepticism about this. You don't have to really jump into this 100% the first day, but be open to it. And as usually if they have that openness, they'll begin to realize that uh, there is a psychological element, but it doesn't always happen right away. I, I'll give you an example of number of patients I've had who they were given one of the books, my, my book, Sarno book, whatever, um, by a friend, maybe a Christmas gift, maybe just a nice gift of a book. And they get look thumbs through the book and they go, man, this is not me. Put it on the bookshelf. Mm -hmm. Six months or a year later, they pick the book off yep. for whatever reason. They start reading through it. Oh my, oh my God, I can't believe this is this is the full, this is the full thing here. This is me. And yeah. they're making the phone call and calling me up for an appointment. They've got to get in right away. 
So yeah. obviously there's a difference in that person, the same person in difference in readiness, willingness. You know, in the psychology literature, there's this concept of readiness to change. And readiness, so it's like an openness, a readiness that has to be there. Uh, so I can't force that to happen. I can't treat somebody with a, for mind-body issues if they're not open to it, but I can at least plant a seed and hope that it grows. What about for somebody like us who are not doctors? I think that I think she's asking that too. Like okay. how how do how do we present it in a option type of way? Um, make a, list, make a, a, a kind of an evidence list. So like put put positive and negative on the top of the list and say let's write down the things that would seem to push us toward the diagnosis of TMS or mind body disorder mm -hmm. PTSD and. Uh, Oh, I see you're a, a type T personality. You know, you're very hard on yourself, right? And, oh, I see that in the past, you've had headaches that seem to have gone away when your college career improved, whatever, you know, checked, right? And so you're going down a list and you had an MRI and you, you didn't have any of that, right? So you, and, oh, I see, but you have doubt. And then on the negative side, maybe some doctor told them X or some doctor told them Y. So you're trying to create a list of evidence. And if you can convince them as maybe an attorney would do in a courtroom, uh, but much more briefly, the preponderance of the evidence supports TMS PPD, uh -huh. then hopefully, at least on the intellectual side, they can accept that, right? So the, I, I find that with the acceptance, it's intellectual first, usually, and then it goes more like emotional, visceral gut in your heart kind of acceptance of the diagnosis. So as a non-physician, just mm -hmm. trying to create a list of evidence together with the patient, pros and cons, like what 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 what's the weight on one side, what's the weight on the other side? And hopefully it leads to the correct answer. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Okay, so we are definitely out of time. Do you have any last um, comments before we sign off? I enjoyed speaking with you. It was a very stimulating discussion. You had some good questions Absolutely. from your listeners and uh, watchers. And um, I hope I hope that this information is, is is useful to some of the people who are out there listening and uh, want to get on their healing journey from pain. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, thank you, Dr. Dave. And we will uh, see you again next. Well, I will see the rest of you watching again next week. <laughs> um, thanks, you guys, and have a great week.